We plan to talk through the issues faced by startup founders and the people close to them. That overused phrase, work-life balance. It is an amazingly focusing time. This is what we do, you know, aside from our families, this is our whole work life. I'm also known as Dr. Wine. or her significant other would both get value from the episode. Well, Jake, would you start just saying a little bit about who you are professionally? Professionally, that's a tough one to answer. What you do for a, a job, how you <laughs> how you pay for toothpaste and okay. sandwiches. Um, I mean, it's a strange one because I, I worked in hospitality for, for most of my adult life. And then the last couple of years, I guess, I've been making a living as a, as a mental health campaigner. But I was jobless for about a year and a half of that because I was actually walking around the country trying to raise money for the Mental Health Foundation, which is a big mental health charity over here. Off the back of, a, I don't know, I still don't really know what to call it. I guess a, an all-time low. You know, I had a major depressive episode a couple of years ago and got signed off work. And so, yeah, I just decided to do this big, this big challenge. So a year and a half, I was living in a tent living off a tenner a day, not earning any money whatsoever. So actually, my professional life only started about six months ago. And I, I guess I pay for toothpaste by making money, giving talks in schools, and writing articles, that sort of thing. So you've had this, you know, a series of like really significant events in your life in the last couple of years. So you had this major depressive episode, and then you went for a very, very long walk. Yeah, just to clear the head. what what happened in your depressive episode what was that like for you I know people describe depression in lots of different ways but yeah I I, I don't know I still think I burnt out more than anything I feel like I've lived with depression for for most of my adult life and I was one of those people that never wanted to talk about it because I felt like it compromised the idea that I had you know other people viewed me a certain way I thought and I thought that talking about being at home and in tears a lot of the time, I thought that would compromise the image that they had of me, which is total rubbish, obviously. What I've learned over the last couple of years is that by being open about that side of your personality, you actually, you know, the relationships you have with people actually grow to be a little bit deeper. But at the time, I felt really, um, really alone in, in my thoughts. And, and I was running a bar in East London at the time and I had a big drink problem, a big drug problem, was just always at work. And I lived above the pub I was in, so I had no sanctuary whatsoever. Or that's how it felt like anyway, you know, I feel like I finished the day's work and then I get locked in this little box and then the next day the box opens and I come back out and I just have no respite from from stress really. And no real outlet either because I, I was running this place. So you've, you've got no friends really when you're <laughs> in middle management, you know, you're either, I was either talking to my superiors or, or my staff, you know, I didn't really have anyone I could properly talk to. Yeah, I got to, uh, I just got to a real stage where uh, I, it just all felt completely hopeless. And and I guess that the main thing was, I just didn't see the point in, in life where I I just forgot what happy being happy felt like, basically. I think that's the, that's the key thing. And um, I couldn't remember the last time I'd laughed. I couldn't remember the last time I'd had a genuinely enjoyable conversation with anybody about anything. And so I just didn't see the point anymore. Because and, and in fact, when you get to that point, I feel like you look back on the times that you were happy, and it's all really skewed. I kind of felt like, oh, that version of myself was 
was fake. That was me putting on a front, me trying to be happy all the time. This is me. This, this. It doesn't feel real. No, it doesn't. This sad sack that I am now, this is the real me and this is who I'm going to be forever. And you just don't see a way out when you're at that point. And yeah, I, I, I got to a point where I'd contemplated taking my own life for a, for a few weeks and then and then I planned it. I planned it. I knew exactly how I was going to do it. And before I did, I, I felt like I needed to to hear to speak to my mum one last time. I've got a really, really close relationship with my mum. And it wasn't like I wanted her to talk me out of anything because my mind was made up. I just needed to hear her voice again. And I, and I, and I called her up and I, you know, I, I broke down on the phone and I don't think we even said anything for a couple of minutes. I think she, she'd noticed that there'd been a change in me over the last few months. And I mean, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky really to I have a strong relationship with my mother but also she's a, she's a mental health professional. She's a clinical nurse. So this is her whole thing, you know? <laughs> so she, she heard something in your voice that she recognized. Yeah, I didn't say anything, but she read between the lines. And in that moment, I guess, just hearing, hearing the compassion in her voice and knowing in that moment that I actually did have someone, that was kind of enough just to put it off for one, one last day. And at the end of the day, we spoke again and she was like, look, we need to get you help, with, don't we? And so... We looked into therapy and that kind of, you know, I went to my GP and they wanted to get me on antidepressants, which freaked me out slightly. I don't know. I was still very ignorant to that whole kind of side of it. And uh, you hear horror stories and stuff. And I really wasn't keen on doing that. But therapy, I thought, okay, well, it's probably about time I talked about this stuff anyway. And I, I had started having CBT and I cut back on my hours at work. But in the end, I was just too poorly to, to carry on. So I got signed off work completely. And, um, and yeah, I moved back to Essex, which is just next to London. My mum lives on this Dutch barge in a really beautiful set. It's like rehab, basically. And it was just like the perfect setting. And she was... <laughs> it's calm and relaxing yeah, by the exactly. river. And my therapist is like also my rock. So that was kind of perfect. So that's, that's, that's basically what happened a couple of years ago. And so how did that translate into this long walk that you took? Like 18 months of a walk? The, the idea just fell out of the sky, really. I, I, I still find it really hard to actually take any kind of ownership of the idea because it was such a, it's such a bizarre moment. I mean, I was just sitting, at, sitting around at home on the boat, licking my wounds for a couple of weeks, watching Frasier reruns that, happened, that are on Channel 4, like I have been for the last million years in England, at like between 10 and 11 a.m. every day. There's only so much you can do of that. <laughs> And because I've, I've always needed, I've always been the kind of person that needs something to do. But in that, in that period, I, I was doing a lot of just sort of sitting and drifting in and out of sleep and feeling sorry for myself. And I just felt like I needed something to have in the day that was my own. I needed to make a decision and do something that was like my little thing in the day, you know. And that just turned into walking the dog. So I just take the dog for a walk once a day. And that became my little thing. And so, you know, every, after a couple of weeks, I was doing this every day and I was out one day and the dog just did something that cracked me up. I can't even remember what he did now. In that moment, I realized that that was the first time I'd laughed probably and for as long as I could remember. And I, in that second, I, I, put, I, I noticed that I was feeling better and I put it all down to being outside. The, the dog, fresh air, walking, moving, being in nature and, and something happened in that moment and I just thought, I need to stay out here. This is where I need to be. This is where I feel... This, this is making me feel better. And, and then I thought, the idea kind of flooded my head. and was like, well, if it's working this much for me, maybe it can be working, it could work for other people too. And how would I show that? What would I do? How could I show? And I, you know, this country is tiny, really, compared to the States. You know, I think you can fit England in Texas. <laughs> and so I thought, why don't I just 
why don't I just stay outside for as long as I can? Keep walking around the country, show people that, because it's a beautiful place. You know, we've got amazing national parks, amazing stretches of coastline, mountain ranges, and there are all these places in Britain that I've always kind of wanted to see anyway. And I thought, if I, if I just start walking and walk around the country and up, discuss my relationship with depression as I go, upload it onto social media and, and also exhibit the most beautiful parts of the country, then it could kind of be like, well, if I can walk here, then you, you guys can get in a car and drive to the coast or, or whatever. It was, it was a bag of ideas at first, but all I knew was that I wanted, to, I wanted to do this. So I just went to the shop, bought a map, one of those big pull-out maps of Great Britain that just started frantically circling all the most beautiful spots around the country and just put a line through them. And this route just appeared. And two months later, I set off from, from Brighton Pier and just headed west. And that's how it started. And then 13 months later, I got back to Brighton Pier from the other side, you know? Madness. <laughs> it's so weird to think about it now because it was so not a... It was so un-me to do something like that. And that's why I find it quite hard to actually take ownership of the idea because something happened. Something happened in that moment that just sort of changed everything, really. How are you different now after having done that? Well, flying solo for 13 months in, you know, vast open country and along coastline, it's, it's the perfect opportunity for, for you to work on yourself. And I consider myself to be, you know, I don't, I'm not a big fan of labels really, but I definitely feel like I'm more of a humanist than anything else. And I think a big part of humanism is, is really looking inward and finding out what you personally want to get out of life and out of the world. I mean, every, everyone's, everyone's personality is as unique to them as their fingerprint, you know. There's no magic bullet, you know. I've, I wish there was, <laughs> you know, if everyone was depressed and this, this one thing can work. But, but life's not like that. I think you really have to, to dig deep and crack yourself open and spill yourself out. And I just did a lot of, a lot of thinking <laughs> in 13 months and thinking how I got to this point and what I wanted out of life. And I just feel like I've, I feel like I've let go of a lot of superficial stuff, what, how much money I want to earn, what I want to achieve professionally, down to, down to stupid things like how I look, you know, these, these completely rubbish hang-ups that people have about themselves that stop them actually unlocking the potential they actually have and setting them on a, on a real path. And I feel like I've found how I want to live my life as a result of doing what I did. So I feel so much better. And I also feel so much better in managing my, my state of mind now as well. I didn't know what I needed before because I denied myself that conversation with myself. And I now know that being outside and being immersed in nature and moving, that's, that's my therapy. And it actually works way better than talk therapy ever did for me. So, Why do you think it was so important for you to be moving and be outside? Like, you know, why not go to a, a, a beautiful house and, and think for 13 months? What's the difference in the motion? I mean, I was always a really sporty kid. And then, and then after school, I've... I don't know, I just, I just found weed, you know, and I started drinking and, and that, that whole thing started happening. And then I started mixing in those kinds of circles where exercise isn't important, essentially. And I feel like I've always, that's always been my thing anyway. I just lost sight of that for, for, for my 20s. And I'm not saying that was, a, that was altogether a bad thing. You know, I feel like a lot of what happened in my life during my 20s was really enjoyable. And I feel like the, the connections and some of the friends that I've made in those circles are still some of my best friends. You know, I don't regret living my life like that at all. But I, I definitely think I should have kept hold of 
exercise and movement and being outside because it was it was what made me happy as a kid. You know, I was never a gamer. Me and my mates were down the field playing football every day in the summer holidays, you know. I feel like we were proper children. <laughs> <laughs> you got dirty and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I've always, and I guess I just lost sight of how much I needed that. In your trip, you know, I imagine a lot of these sort of joyful moments of seeing these beautiful landscapes and and also the satisfaction of having walked hard and like being physically tired. But like, how did you... How did you deal with the loneliness or the discomfort? I, I quite like my own company. If I didn't, I don't think I'd have signed myself up for 13 months of solitude. And it wasn't even solitude, really, because, I mean, the, the days that I was walking, obviously, I'm by myself. But I, 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 really, I got really into writing and, and documenting my relationship with depression that way. And I was sort of making, making little videos just to, at first, just to sort of entertain my mates back home who thought the whole idea was just ridiculous. And I'd sort of make these funny little videos for, for them. And so I always felt connected. And, and you know, I've, I've, I've got a phone, you know, you're never alone with a phone. And, and, and so, but I mean, yeah, obviously there were times where I felt a little bit lonely where you do miss a bit of human contact, but it kind of forced me to talk to strangers and, and want to interact with people along the way. And, and that became a real lifeline for me, especially towards the end. I mean, I, I'm a really keen runner. And there were like towards, well, from the middle part of the walk onwards, I, I was looking to, to run sections of the route. And obviously with a bit huge backpack on with my tent and everything, that was virtually impossible. So logistically, it didn't really work. But I knew that once I got to a certain point that I wanted to run home, and that point ended up being Edinburgh which is about 600 miles from the finishing line. But for some reason, I felt like that was the, that should be a good starting spot. And I felt in good enough shape to do it. So I sent my pack home, just had a little day pack. And, and luckily, I got a, a big enough social media following by that point that I felt confident in that if at the start of the week, I just post an appeal for places to stay, this is where I'm heading this week. These are the towns that I'll be passing through. If anyone who follows me knows anyone who is in that area who'd be up for putting up a smelly... 30 year old beardy nomads then then get in touch and I ended up staying with a different person a different family a different couple every single night of the way you know it it took me six weeks to run from Edinburgh to Brighton and every single night I stayed with you know bar the odd exception when I passed through somewhere where an old friend would be or something I stayed with people I didn't know and and that was probably the most amazing six weeks of my life to be honest because I just had these little snapshots into people's lives and and there were so many of them that it actually works as a, a sample of the population in some ways you know there was that there was that varied and um although there was some really weird continuity things actually there was uh, i say with three families who had children and every single one of those families homeschooled their kids which i thought was quite an interesting coincidence and I mean, anyone, anyone that's going to put up a, a total stranger for the night is, is like cool by definition in my book. So they all had that in common. But they were also, you know, I stayed with, I stayed with a vicar and his family. I stayed with the chief superintendent of Northumbria Police and his family. I stayed with druggies. I stayed with young people, old people, you know, and, and every single one of them had, had empathy. And every single one of them wanted to have the conversation because of the nature of what I was doing. Well, yeah, you you have started with such a universal. We like to pretend that the depression is an exceptional experience, but of course, it's it's not exceptional. It's it's not at all more not at all more common. And I think you, by nature of the conversation that you're having, it's just such an easy, natural entry point for any stranger. 
to talk about depression. hundred percent. And and it's not like, you know, even if it doesn't affect you directly, if 99 times out of a hundred, it will, it will have affected you indirectly. You know, everyone, I feel like everyone's got a, a family member or a friend that has become overwhelmed by sadness at some point. And, and that was another big conversation I ended up having was what, what can be done to, to give people who know people who are struggling, how do we give them the tools to give advice and to, and to really be there for someone else? I mean, I don't know how far the mental health conversation has got over the pond, but last year it felt like it was a real breakthrough year for it, which is kind of strange because the, I did this at the perfect time. You know, the, the mental health conversation wasn't really as ubiquitous as it is now. And for some reason, as soon as I started my walk, that's when it all started kicking off. Why do you think it's entered the public consciousness so much? The Royals? <laughs> yeah, well, the Royals definitely helped. And and um, and I was very lucky to meet them a few times as a result of it. And But I, I think more than anything, just the landscape of of what is what should be talked about and what shouldn't be talked about anymore is, you know, I, I think in the information age when everyone's got every all the information at their disposal, now people are waking up to, yeah, actually, this is just because this has been like this for forever doesn't mean this is how it, it should be. You know, we, we, you could apply the same to gender identity, which is a huge thing right now, and, and mental health, obviously, feminism, which obviously has never really gone away, but has actually had a, you know, a kind of really big, I don't want to say uprising because that's negative, but it's, you know, that, that's a lot bigger now than it has been in, in recent decades. It's more in the public consciousness again. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, people seem to be resetting standards social standards because all of a sudden you're not just part of your local community and everything outside of that is is alien you you've got everything you've got the whole world and everything available and every attitude and every type of person in the palm of your hand and and it's absolutely the time that that people should be reevaluating what is acceptable and what isn't in terms of language in terms of subject matter and i think mental health was just one of those things and as with anything that that is all of a sudden part of collective thought more than more than it has been before. The first course of action is to actually feel confident and feel comfortable talking about it without judgment. And so that was the big theme over here last year with, with the mental health movement. It was about, we need to open up, we need to normalise this conversation, which is great and everything, but we, I feel like we're now at a point where, you know, as I said, we need to kind of give tools to people who are listening. And and that's, that feels like the next step to me. I mean, there's there's a part of me that feels like the mental health conversation over here is, it's going to end up being a fad or uh, just a flavor of the month thing, which kind of makes me sick to my stomach. So in fear of that happening, I feel like there needs to be, the conversation needs to evolve now. People need to stop saying the conversation as well. God, I think I must have said it about 20 times and I'm <laughs> boring myself. Well, what do, you, what do you want it to be? Like, how do you want it to change? Because yes, it, it's the beginning of the conversation has happened. And I empathize with this because I feel like that's like, I talk with people in technology and in the business world about mental health. And I have to couch it as, well, we're going to have a conversation about mental health. Because in some way, like talking about it makes it sound less scary than actually doing something about it. Yeah, and as far as I'm concerned, that's that's that is the starting block. You know, that's the kind of bare minimum that should have been there anyway. So you're right. Yeah, how how do we evolve it from there? I, I mean, going to what back to what I said at the start, I feel like you know, feeling like everyone can feel safe to talk about it is one thing, but I think there has to be a, a more sort of difficult conversation about how much of recovery and how much of mental health management 
boils down to the individual and how much responsibility the individual has over their own well-being. Talking isn't a it's not a solution, it's not a cure. What really works is looking inwardly and and figuring out exactly what you need as a person. I mean, I'm I'm talking about everyday the more common sort of stress and trauma and grief, things that unmanaged can lead to potentially lead to more serious mental illness. Yeah, I I think I think people need to start looking inwardly. But it's, it's difficult at the same time because we, we live in a time where people, everyone's got an opinion about stuff and there seems to be a lot of, a lot of dogmatic approaches to many subjects out there. And I, I, I really try hard not to push an ideology or a, you know, or a doctrine onto people because I, I really don't believe that there's one shoe that fits all in terms of recovery. Well, I was going to say, it seems like it, would, it has to be this, this joint effort between individuals being able to be self-reflective enough and informed enough to know about what they need and when they're not well and when they are well and also creating systems and communities that are like more sane. I mean, the way that you described your work life before your breakdown, where you were sort of like going from box to box, you worked really hard, but you felt disconnected and then you went upstairs to this little box and felt disconnected. And so the way that your life was set up was isolated and it was not integrated with nature. It doesn't sound like you were outside. It doesn't sound like you were moving your body much. And some of that was systemic, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. But I I think at the same time, yeah, you, you you can say that some of it was systemic. But if I'm really honest with myself, I could have got out. I could have got out and done this what I needed to feel better, but it's it's hard when you're in that place. It's like you didn't know it was important or didn't think it was important or didn't... Well, not just that, but yeah, I mean, some days that would be the case, but a lot of the time I knew exactly what I needed to make myself feel better. I just I was just too low to, to get off my ass and do it, you know? And, and that's, in fact, that's when, the first, when I first started the walk, I was maybe slightly more dogmatic because I, I figured that that was was my conversation that that's that was going to be my way of contributing to, to the mental health movement was to be an example of someone who has found a very specific thing that works for them and to try and encourage other people to do that but the further I went on and the more sort of messages that I got the more I realized that you know the last thing someone wants to hear when they're at crisis point when they can't get out from under the, the duvet is to see some kind of like newly happy guy with a real lease for life and and saying hey you could be like me you just need to get outside man and and do this and get outside and, and walk and stuff and, and it would be like piss off no one would like you yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like that would just in, in fact that could that could probably be quite destructive to some people so the further I went on the more I stopped that and just tried to be an example of someone who'd found something that works specifically for them and 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 to show that it wasn't you know an overnight fix either you know I ended up documenting it was 13 months I had away. It started off as this big challenge, this big endurance thing, but it turned into a lifestyle. I've had jobs that last less time. You know, it was a real lifestyle. And, and so it became completely normal. And so I, my mood did dip after a while and I did start to get really low. And, and I felt, you know, at the time, I just sort of, I'd, I'd retreat back. You know, it would take me an hour or two hours to, to actually get out of my sleeping bag and pack my tent away and, and get moving again. And at the time, I'd feel like, everything was was coming to an end and and I was like god people can't see that 
that this isn't working, you know, that this isn't a fix and stuff. But but obviously I came to the realization that no, actually these are these are the times where it's most important to to say how I'm feeling. Because it it isn't just a it isn't a cure what I'm doing. It's a, it's a way of managing it. And obviously the the posts where I was more honest about the down days I was having engaged people far more than than the ones where I was like going for a little dip in the sea or or climbing a mountain with some guy I just met or just having this incredible Instagram life. How do you feel about depression now? Like, are there are there things that you're grateful for about it? Are there things, are there ways that it's a friend? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, another another one of my things is is music. You know, music is another real therapy for me, and I love. I've always loved a Kurt Cobain lyric. He says, uh, "I miss the comfort and feeling sad," and that's always really kind of resonated with me because. It is comfortable in some ways, depression. For for me anyway, you know, there's there's a certain familiarity to it. You know, if I'm on my own and I'm I'm depressed, I care so little about the outside world and anyone else that I can just kind of sit there in it and and there's a there's a strange sort of comfort in it. Sorry, that's not really the answer to the question, but that's kind of just what I started thinking about. Well, I I mean I, I like her answer because I earlier you talked about this this is or this isn't a cure and I mean, I'm, I'm a mental health professional. Like I, I treat depression as a disorder, as a, as a problem, but that's not actually how I think about it really. Like I feel like it's part of us. It's part of our life. It's part of our culture. It's something that lives in us that we have to protect against sometimes, but other times we have to figure out how to integrate it into life in a, in a healthier, less dangerous way. Sure. I guess there's there's some there's some really great sides to it. I mean, depression for me now has become more of an umbrella term, to be honest. You know, I feel like it's, everyone's is so specific to them, and that's why the conversation for me will always be really interesting. The thing I realized about talking about about depression was, you know, don't talk about what you think has got you to that point. You know, that's you don't have that in common with anybody. You're the only person who's lived the life you've had, had the parents you've had, had the experiences you've had. If you if you if that's your way of opening up the the talk, then then of course you're going to feel alone in it because no one else can relate to that. But it's the feeling itself that's the common thread. That's the thing that everyone has in common. And then from that, you can start talking about your own experiences. I, I mean, I think the talking about that sort of thing is is like a magical conversation now. And in fact, that's a really good thing about depression is when you're actually at a point where you feel confident and comfortable talking about it with somebody else who shares that burden then you'll never have a more intense and deep and honest conversation in your life you know eyes just lock in everyone gets reset to zero I feel like in that conversation every single person I've talked to about my depression it levels the playing field and I've spoken to Prince Harry about it and I've spoken to my mum about it and I've spoken to the vicar of Wormsley about it and it's amazing how similar or virtually identical the mood of those conversations are. You want to know more. You want to hear about someone else's experience and you want a chance to be able to compare it to your own because the more you learn about someone else's experience, the more you learn about yourself, I think. If it's a real two-way conversation, that's not just good for the individual. That's, that's good for society. It's, you leave ego and you're not talking about your job and you're not talking about any, any sort of day-to-day superficial things. You're talking about real stuff. And those are the conversations that actually connect us more than anything. So, so yeah, I think if people feel like they're in a position where they want to own 
or not want to own, but if they're ready to own their depression and talk about it and articulate it in their own way, then then I think it can lead to a really great sort of social life and a great society in many ways. I'm resonating with how universal the feelings are and how much people do long to have those kinds of really authentic conversations when they when they feel like they're given permission or when there's enough safety to say, yeah, I'm not always okay and I don't feel well and I'm struggling. That's all you need. That's all that, you know, that's, that's the start, isn't it? And then it's strange because sometimes I, I talk to people about what, what I went through a couple of years ago and they, they're, they're surprised at how I don't get upset about it anymore. And it's because I've been talking about it for so long now. I've managed to zero in on, on exactly how I was feeling back then and exactly how I feel about it now. And it's empowering. It feels like I'm in control of it. And the depths of depression is a, is a really scary place because control doesn't really exist. It runs you, you know, you don't run it in any way. And I feel like the work I've done on myself over the last couple of years and the conversations that I've had when I'm, when I'm feeling okay, they help me in the times where the darkness creeps in and I'm, I'm out for a couple of weeks, you know? Yeah. It's so powerful to have told the story and to feel that sense of like ownership and connection to your own story because you then you have it in a sense of history. You realize like I've been in a low place before and I lived in that low place for a while and then I came out of that low place. And by telling the totality of the timeline and it no long, like you have this footprint of like what it feels like on the other side of depression. Knowing that most people who have depression have it periodically throughout their lives. It comes and goes. Yeah. But so is the happier time between. So is the relief from depression. That's part of the landscape too. Oh, 100%. And I mean, what I've really been finding interesting recently is, um, is what happens to people immediately after an all-time low, you know, a, de- a major depressive episode that, that I had, something happened to me that would that sort of change the course of my life. And I, I was really keen to see if there was other people out there who, who would experience the same thing. And the more I looked, you know, some people, when they experience that feeling of utter hopelessness, that's it for them. That's lights out. And other people are able to turn it around temporarily. But like you said, it's, it will be a continuous thing throughout their lives and it then becomes their job to, to learn how to deal with it. And some people, they experience an all-time low and, and in a weird way, it, it unlocks some sort of potential in them. I mean, I love, like, I love hearing these stories about people like me, you know? <laughs> no, no, but, but people... You're people, one of them. <laughs> but, yeah. but people, I, I want to meet more people who, who are just completely ordinary, who went through something that they consider to be the worst period of their life. And actually, without doing that, they wouldn't have achieved something momentous. They've come alive. Yeah, and, 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 it's, and, and in a weird way, it can be, if you own it enough, it can turn an ordinary person into an extraordinary person. I wouldn't have done the thing I did without depression in there in the first place, which is weird. And that's, that's where I'm weirdly thankful for it. I'm weirdly thankful that that awful time in my life actually happened because, you know, and I think that's really important for people to hear as well, because when you do feel like that all hope is lost or whatever, there is a chance for you to, <laughs> you know, it's so hard to talk about this without sounding mega cheesy. But 
Yeah. Well, it's like, you would never, you would never say it to someone like that. You would never say, Oh, someday you're going to be grateful for this. Or, you know, this is just a great opportunity for you to rise. It's like, Oh, don't say that to people. But your story tells the story without making it a soundbite that can be stitched on an inspirational pillow or. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's why. The point is it's, it's gotta be a longer story. It's a conversation. It's not, it's not a meme. No, it's not. It's, it's not the end. You know, it would have been great in many ways if the, the end of the walk was the end of my story. But I find it more important to engage these days than I did when I was out there because it's like, well, no, life isn't like that. And actually, you know, I was living this transient lifestyle for, for just over a year and now I'm static again. And in some days I feel like I'm back to square one. And some days I feel like I've, I look back on the time I had and the work I did on myself and and I feel like it's it's changed me irreparably. And yeah, I think as long as there's as long as there's people out there documenting, you know, their relationships with depression and 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 talking about it, then the scope for what can be achieved afterwards increases, and and people start to realize that it's not a death sentence. You know, what's the like way that you end your talks when you're presenting at schools or when you're talking to people about this? How do you how do you like bring it all home? It's different every time. I, I, do you know what? I, I rarely go in there with something prepared. I mean, the ones where they pay silly money, <laughs> I maybe do a bit of work there. Not, I'm not saying that I do those like regularly at all. But if, you know, if I go into a school or a university, you know, or a community or a workplace or whatever, I, I very rarely plan ahead because I know I know my story well enough, and I, and I like to judge the mood on the day because. I'm very aware that that talking about this as easy as it is for me sometimes it, it can be really triggering for other people and you know if I if I go into a primary school I really try and sugarcoat it I I don't I try to avoid big heavy buzzwords and but at the same time I, I mean those are probably my favorite ones in you know especially in primary schools which is like I don't know what it is over there primary schools year elementary school yeah so so like from 4 till 11 because they they actually have masses of insight like way more than I ever think they are and and it's (laughs) I mean it's simple but it's in some ways the simplicity of their language actually kind of hits the nail on the head more often than not and I've really started to enjoy asking them what they think things like depression and anxiety are and hearing the words that they throw back because in some ways it it simplifies it in my head too but yeah, generally, generally, I mean, I, I always start off the same. I always go in there and I feel like I'm going to have an anxiety attack and I regret not preparing anything and I think, you idiot. And then I, I start talking and it all kind of, I sort of fumble and I fall over my words a little bit. But then it, I, I, I generally see how engaged everyone is. Like I said, it's, the, it's a magic conversation. It's one of those conversations that just seems to engage people and I try and keep it fairly, I don't like to talk relentlessly for for the whole thing, I like to engage in, and, and have a bit of feedback sort of, and try and open the floor up a little. I, I really like doing that because then it becomes a safe space. I'm not the guy at the front just, you know, I'm so mindful of, of coming across as the guy who feels who thinks he's got all the answers at the front up there. I'd much rather it was a, a communal thing with, with, with me leading it and sort of directing it, you know. But, I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I honestly don't think I've ever done two talks the same. The, the one I tried, the one I really worked hard on was, was my TED Talk, which I did last year. And obviously, because you can't blag that, you can't turn up to, a, to an auditorium where the thing's going to get put on YouTube afterwards and get up there and just scratch your ass and go, uh, what's uh, uh? So, yeah, I, I, I worked really hard on that one. But most of the others, I... 
I just do this, you know, I just talk until I feel like I've lost people. <laughs> but it never seems to happen, which is nice. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, what's next for you? You're you're hitting the radio? Uh, yeah, I've got, I started, I started the BBC at the end of the month, local radio, not national, obviously. But that's that's great. Um, I'm really excited about that. And I've got another challenge lined up for December. As I said earlier, my one of my big self-care things, if that's what you want to call it, is uh, is music, particularly sort of punk and heavier music. And I I, um, I find I find that sort of music kind of fascinating in many ways. You know, now now that I've started to think how everything applies to my well-being, that sort of music I find really cathartic. And I realise now that I always have. And there's you know, heavy music is one of those things that that seems to divide opinion. I feel like some people get it and some people don't. And the people that that don't get it, you know, you look at a crowd at a, a metal show and you see hundreds of kids moshing and, you know, it, it would be easy to think that that is a direct cause of the music being so aggressive. You know, by listening to aggressive music, it's making these kids aggressive and, and making them delinquent and, and what have you. But actually, if you identify with heavy music, you, you have that anger built up in you already. And, and those shows and listening to that music can cathartically help you work through more negative emotions. I find, I've, I've started to find it really fascinating. I've fell down a big rabbit hole with this a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so your December challenge is something related to music? Yeah, so there's a, there's a band... I'm not sure what your listenership's like, so and I haven't actually announced this over here, so I don't want to give too much away. But um, there's a there's a band, it's an American band actually, who are, who are based in California, and they've been one of my favourite bands for for about ten years. And I was running part of my challenge last year. I was running through uh, the Great Glen Way, and they released an album. I thought, oh great, I'll, I'll download that tonight and I'll listen to it on my run tomorrow. And and that run, there was something about the new record and the set setting I was in and the fact that I was running, it was like the three big things that, that make me feel complete. I just felt bulletproof. I really felt like there was nothing that could touch me. And, and I thought next time they come over and they play here, I'll, I want to try and incorporate something. So, so they're coming over here in December and I'm going to go to the first show and then as they, and I'm going to run the tour behind them. So the first show is in London. The middle show of the tour is in Bristol, which is on the other side of the country. So I'll run to that and then run to the last show of the tour and, and kind of that'll be the challenge aspect. And then I want to turn it into a project that sort of looks at heavy music and, and the effect it has on, on the well-being of sort of non-conformists, I guess. That sounds amazing. Well, if people, if people want to, to follow your challenges and your runs, what's the best way for people to learn more? So my blog is jaketyler.blog, although I haven't really been writing much these days so best off going to instagram which is at jake tyler underscore bdw and that's the same on twitter and on facebook i'm facebook.com slash black dog walks black dog walks okay yeah well thanks so much for talking to me today i appreciate that thank you it's been a great great chat and yeah we should hook up and try and get you on my one someday <laughs> so you can actually answer some questions <laughs> and I don't dominate so heavily well you are being <laughs> you are being interviewed so it's all fair thanks for listening to this episode of Zen Founder our theme song is A New Beginning by bensound.com used under creative commons 